The House and Senate will come back Monday and leave Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back on Tuesday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 5283, the Protecting Our Communities from Failure to Secure the Border Act, H.R. 5961, the No Funds for Iranian Terrorism Act, and S.J. Res. 32, providing for congressional disapproval relating to small business lending under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. On Thursday, the House began considering amendments to H.R. 5283, the No Funds for Iranian Terrorism Act. The House considered seven amendments and agreed to six of them. Then the House passed the amended bill by a vote of 307 to 119. Then the House considered and rejected an amendment to H.R. 5283, the Protecting Our Communities from Failure to Secure the Border Act, And then the House passed the unamended bill by a vote of 224 to 203. On Friday morning, the House considered S.J. Res. 32, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection relating to small business lending under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. The resolution passed by a vote of 221 to 202. Then the House did something it has done only five times previously. It voted to expel one of its own members. By a vote of 311 to 114, that is, with about 20 votes to spare, and with 105 Republicans voting in favor and 112, including every member of the House Republican leadership, voting against, the House passed H. Res. 878, a resolution providing for the expulsion of Representative George Santos from the United States House of Representatives. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return Monday, but the first votes won't take place until Tuesday. The House will consider 11 bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the House will consider H.R. 4468, the Choice in Automobile Retail Sales Act of 2023, H.R. 5933, the Deterrent Act, and H.J. Res. 88, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Department of Education relating to income-driven repayment for the William D. Ford Federal Direct Loan Program and the Federal Family Education Loan Program. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jeffrey M. Bryan, to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Minnesota. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Margaret M. Garnett to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Jose Javier Rodriguez to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Hawaii. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Micah W.J. Smith to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Hawaii and Jamel Semper to be U.S. District Judge for the District of New Jersey. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Irma Carrillo Ramirez to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return on Monday, with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on confirmation of Irma Carrillo Ramirez to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals.
then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I would expect we're going to see votes on the nominations of Lauren L. Alikan to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Columbia, and Elizabeth H. Richard to be Coordinator for Counterterrorism, with the ambassador with the rank of Ambassador at Large at the State Department. Now let's get to the latest on Senator Tuberville's hold on military promotions. Last March, the Biden administration decided to ignore a decades-old law that said no taxpayer dollars could be spent to pay for abortions. While sticking to the letter of the law and not paying specifically for abortions themselves, the Department of Defense announced it would pay for travel and related costs for service members and their dependents who decided to travel out of state to obtain an abortion. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville was outraged and decided to do something about it. One of the prerogatives of an individual senator is what's called a hold. That is, any individual senator can send word to the leadership that he or she will oppose a unanimous consent request to take up a matter and put it on the Senate floor. Unanimous consent requests speed up the business of the Senate and are standard practice. So too are holds. Tuberville informed the leadership that he would be holding all military promotions until the Department of Defense reversed its policy change. The Department of Defense refused to reverse its policy change. A standoff ensued, and to date, hundreds of military promotions have been held up. It's important to understand that Senator Tuberville is not denying any of these officers their promotion. What he is denying is Senate Majority Leader Schumer's ease in having the Senate confirm their promotions in a timely fashion. Schumer could bring the promotions to the floor of the Senate just as he brings any other resolution to the floor of the Senate, but given the number of military promotions we're talking about, that would take hundreds of hours of floor time. Defense hawks, including Republicans, have become concerned about the effect of the holds. They believe military readiness is being affected, and they've tried to convince Senator Tuberville to end his protest. Twice, they've gone to the floor to call up the nominations, but he's met them on the floor to object to consideration of the nominations one at a time. Stuck by the Senate rules, Democrats have moved a proposed rules change through the Senate Rules and Administration Committee. It's now ready for a floor vote. The change would allow the majority leader to bring all the officers' promotions to the floor as a single block, and would allow for them all to be promoted with just one vote. In order to make that rules change, though, at least nine Republicans would have to vote to end debate on it. Many Republicans are torn. They worry about military readiness, but they also don't want to undermine their Republican colleague who's using the rules of the Senate to make a stand on an issue that's important to him. And then you bring in the prospect of a vote on a rules change, and that just adds new complications. As the end of the year approaches, we add another new complication. Under the rules, any nomination that hasn't been acted on by the end of the year must be resubmitted in the new year. That means paperwork, and that's tedious, and that means even more delays. Many of the officers waiting for confirmation of their promotions may decide to give up the wait and resign from the service. Punchbowl News reported Tuesday evening that Tuberville told his Senate Republican colleagues at their Tuesday party lunch that he's going to find a way to end the standoff before Schumer brings his rules change resolution to the floor. Listen, everyone, he said, I got you all into this mess. I'm going to get you out. Stay tuned. 
Now to the latest on the emergency supplemental. Back to Punchbowl News. Uh, Punchbowl reported this morning that negotiations over the emergency supplemental spending bill broke down Friday night over Senate Democrats' refusal to accept provisions of H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act. Specifically, Senate Democrats concluded that Senate Republicans were unable or unwilling to accept the Senate Democrats' compromises on border security. Senate Republicans have vowed to block any emergency supplemental foreign aid bill that does not include significant changes to border and asylum policy to allow the U.S. government to regain control of the southern border. Senate Democrats involved in the negotiations determined Friday that Senate Republicans would not compromise and instead walked away from the talks and have not come back. Senate Majority Leader Schumer is expected to begin teeing up the floor process for consideration of the emergency supplemental aid package as early as today. The key will come later in the week when he calls Senate Republicans bluff by calling up a motion to invoke cloture on a motion to proceed to the supplemental spending package. If he does not have agreement from Senate Republicans, will he be able to woo the nine Republican votes necessary to move the package? Or will at least 41 Senate Republicans vote to deny cloture, that is, end debate, on the motion to proceed? Stay tuned. Now for the latest on government spending. There wasn't any movement at all on any spending bills last week. The House has passed seven of the 12 spending bills, while the Senate has passed just three of them. The good news is that for the first time in a long time, we won't have a Christmas omnibus jammed down our throats. The government is fully funded until more than halfway into January. But just because there wasn't any movement on any of the spending bills last week doesn't mean there was not progress toward resolution. At a Wednesday press conference featuring House and Senate conservatives who gathered to talk about the negotiations over border security and the president's request for an emergency supplemental spending bill, Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, revealed that the HFC would accept a higher overall spending level for discretionary spending than what the House conservatives had insisted on previously. Back in the spring, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden came to agreement on a debt ceiling deal that included a provision codifying a top-line number of $1.59 trillion for discretionary spending for fiscal year 24. The Freedom Caucus objected to that number and insisted that the House pass spending bills should spend no more than $1.471 trillion, a difference of about $118 billion. For months, the Freedom Caucus held to its insistence that FY24 spending bills spend no more than $1.471 trillion. That's in large part why the House has only passed seven of its 12 spending bills, and by some accounts at the time, it's a large part of the reason Speaker McCarthy was dethroned. But on Wednesday, House Freedom Caucus Chairman Perry declared that most House Freedom Caucus members would support spending pegged to the higher $1.59 trillion level. No more gimmicks. Most of the House voted for it. Most of the Senate voted for it, he said. That's where we have to be. Don't be adding stuff on it. Let's write the appropriations bills. Let's get the spending bills right. Let's set that as the number. And then when we do that, let's start conferencing bills, end quote. To my knowledge, the House Freedom Caucus did not take a formal vote on this position, and not all members of the HFC agree. 
Chip Roy, for instance, is very unhappy about this, and I would expect that he'll vote against spending bills set to the higher level. Andy Biggs, too, says he will not agree to the higher spending level. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. Before Thanksgiving, the House Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena to Leslie Wolf, the assistant United States attorney in Delaware, who's been serving as special counsel David Weiss's chief deputy since the beginning of the Hunter Biden investigation. IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley testified before the Ways and Means Committee that Wolf had on multiple occasions taken actions to block the investigation. Shapley said that, among other things, Wolf tipped off Hunter Biden's lawyers to a potential search of a storage unit, thereby giving Hunter time to move evidence before a subpoena could be served. He said she prevented an application for a warrant for Joe Biden's cell phone records to determine if Joe was actually sitting with his son Hunter when Hunter texted a business colleague in China to threaten the colleague. And Shapley said Wolf prevented an application for a search warrant on Joe Biden's guest house. Wolf will testify before the Judiciary Committee on Thursday, December 7. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, responded to the House Oversight Committee's subpoena by declaring that Biden would be pleased to testify before the committee in December, but only if the testimony was in public. He was worried, he said, that Republicans would take any testimony in a private deposition and selectively leak to the news media whatever they wanted, painting an unfair picture. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer replied that Biden would first be deposed in private, like every other witness. There's a reason witnesses first get deposed in private sessions. This is how investigators build cases. As we saw in the Ways and Means Committee depositions of the two IRS whistleblowers, what happens in one of these sessions is simple. Each side gets to interview the witness for a full hour at a time, so an investigator can develop a line of questioning without the stop-start interruptions of a five- or six-minute time limit. Public testimony can be helpful, but it's the private depositions where information is really gathered. On Friday, House Oversight Committee Chairman Comer and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan wrote a letter to Hunter Biden's lawyer asking him to confirm that Biden would appear as subpoenaed on Wednesday, December 13th. Now to the latest on the Biden impeachment inquiry. On Wednesday, House Republicans launched a website at gop.gov slash Biden impeachment inquiry that serves as a one-stop shop on all matters related to the Biden impeachment inquiry. The website is full of information from the three different committees involved in the impeachment inquiry and includes summaries of all their findings to date, along with what they call key evidence. On Friday morning, appearing on Fox & Friends, Speaker Johnson said he would move ahead with a formal vote to establish an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Quote, it's become a necessary step, he said, accusing the White House of blocking Justice Department witnesses from testifying and withholding thousands of pages of requested evidence. The Biden White House has deemed the inquiry illegitimate and has Done so by, in doing so, the Biden White House is relying on arguments first made by the White House Counsel's Office in the previous administration, when Speaker Pelosi launched an impeachment inquiry against President Trump without benefit of a floor vote to authorize it. Quote, 
a formal impeachment inquiry vote on the floor will allow us to take it to the next necessary step, Speaker Johnson said on Friday, quote, and I think it's something we have to do at this juncture, end quote. Some Republican lawmakers were speculating that the vote to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry could come as soon as this week. Now to the latest on the Trump indictments. On Friday, Federal District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected claims by former President Trump that he enjoyed absolute and complete immunity from criminal complaints charging him with attempting to illegally overturn the results of the 2020 election based on the fact that he took those actions while in office, end quote. I'm sorry, quote, whatever immunities a sitting president may enjoy, the United States has only one chief executive at a time, and that position does not confer a lifelong get-out-of-jail-free pass, she wrote. Former presidents enjoy no special conditions on their federal criminal liability, Defendant may be subject to federal investigation, indictment, prosecution, conviction, and punishment for any criminal acts undertaken while in office, end quote. Then she added, quote, defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens, end quote. Trump's lawyers expected to lose this ruling, but now that they've got the ruling in hand, they can launch their appeals strategy. First up will be an appeal to a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. If he loses his appeal to that panel, he can appeal to the full circuit court, and if he loses there, he can appeal to the Supreme Court. Those appeals will take time. Those appeals could well delay the start of the trial, until after the 2024 election. And that might just be the strategy behind these appeals. Now, finally, to the Jenny Beth Show. Episode 42 of the Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. The episode features Jenny Beth's interview with Andy Roth, formerly of the Club for Growth, who now runs the State Freedom Caucus Network, which, as you might imagine, is an organization dedicated to the proposition that the success of the House Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives can be replicated at the state level, one state at a time. And that's our Washington Report for this week.